You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. In retrospect, I think it began with feelings of fatigue. I couldn't keep myself awake. I was wanting just to go back to sleep. My name is John Rayside. My name is Francis Rayside. I was really feeling like I had the flu. We didn't really know what to do. I put a nice warm hat on him and said, why don't you get in a nice hot bath? The chills were so bad that I couldn't talk. I couldn't stop my teeth from chattering. He needed to blow his nose and he was hands were shaking so much he couldn't take the paper off of the toilet paper roll so he could blow his nose. And he said, Franny, can you help me? Francie called the advice nurse. I said, well, probably it was the flu. He said, well, it can't be the flu because it's not flu season. It's impossible to get the flu except in flu season. You were really unsteady and kind of becoming zombie-like because you weren't making eye contact. You know, the you that I kind of know as a personality had almost sort of evaporated. So that was really scary. So they did kind of speed you into the emergency where they took your vital signs. First of all, they did a urine sample, and the urine was brown. And then they took your blood pressure, and I guess your blood pressure was extremely low and falling. And my heartbeat was really rapid. It was really, really high. So he was in tachycardia. Whether it was a viral infection or a bacterial infection was not clear. He didn't have pneumonia. They did x-rays. His blood wasn't showing anything that they recognized as being wrong. And then he would get these chills that they call rigors or rigors. And it was a very terrifying looking thing. It looks like someone withdrawing from a heroin. You've seen all these movies about people who were in the grips of malaria, you know, and that was what I was experiencing. Kind of jackhammer chills and then, you know, fever spikes. Finally, they called in an infectious disease doctor. Jennifer Kate Arnold, and I'm an infectious disease physician at Kaiser in Oakland. Someone whose specialty was looking at regional rare diseases all over the world. Malaria was never in my differential diagnosis, meaning I did not consider malaria in John's case. And and honestly, there was sort of this chipper aura about the infectious disease people because they were, I'm sure they were empathic and and sympathetic and, and worried about John. But on the other hand, sort of this you know, scientific twinkle in the eye. Hmm, this is interesting. And that evening I was able to use our our home computers to review his chart. So when I got to the hospital the next morning, before I even went to see John, 
I went down to the lab. I knew that the team had requested a blood smear, but it had not yet been read. So I picked up the slide and I brought it to the pathology department. Meanwhile, when we first went in there, when we first went into the emergency, some, of the, some doctor did ask us if we had done any traveling in recent weeks. We did say we were on the East Coast and we did bring up, or I did bring up, the possibility of, you know, a tick bite. Babesia is a, a protozoal parasite with a lot of similarities to malaria. It's a parasite that goes into the red blood cells and as it divides, it breaks open the red blood cells and destroys them. We had been in New York. Most of the time we were out at the end of Long Island in Orient, Long Island and Greenport, Long Island. We walked around a beautiful little wetlands area that's not far from our house. So we put the slides down and turned on the light with a microscope that allows us both to see it at the same time. And there were Babesia all over the place, infecting probably about 5% of the red blood cells. So this secured a diagnosis of Babesiosis caused by Babesia microti. Can you actually see the parasite? I mean, when you look in at the blood cells, do you see like a little creature swimming around? You can actually see just with a regular microscope and standard blood staining, you can see the intraerythrocytic parasite. So what that means is the parasite is within the red blood cells. He never realized he had been bitten by a tick. We never saw a tick on him. It's a nymph tick that carries this. That's just, you know, tiny step up from a baby. The size of a pencil point. So we treated John with a combination of antimicrobials, including atovaquone and azithromycin. Antimicrobial medications, is that the same as antibiotics? It's a little bit more of a general term. Antimicrobials, sometimes they can have activity against bacteria and, for example, protozoa. So I just prefer the more general term. So have you seen John since then, and how did he seem? He's doing great. Yeah, he appeared and then he disappeared for a little while, and then he appeared again and stayed. I'm feeling great. I think I'm totally recovered. Wow, that was scary, Molly, because, you know, you can get something without even knowing it, just a little tiny thing, it just bites you, you don't even see it, and your doctor probably won't even be able to recognize it. That's not much confidence in your doctor, Seth. Well, uh, you know, when you have rare things, that's a real problem with uh, medicine, in fact. They're not used to seeing the things that they're not used to seeing. Well, in this case, what they couldn't see was an infection from a Babesia parasite, and it's a parasite, not a bacterium or a virus that bit him. I guess viruses don't really bite, though. Yeah, well, they can bite you. (laughs) In some sense, they can bite you. But indeed, he was bitten by a tick, but that was carrying a parasite. And a parasite is just a little microscopic animal thing. Like, is it as small as a cell? It's smaller than a cell. Not much, but a little. Is it as small as a virus? No, it's bigger than a virus. (laughs) And bigger than a bread box? It's smaller than a bread box. Is it bigger than a bacterium, a parasite? Is a parasite bigger than a bacterium? Didn't we just do that? No, we didn't do that yet. Yeah, well, it is bigger than most bacteria. Bacteria come in all sizes, but you take your average run-of-the-mill bacterium, it's bigger. Okay, bigger than a bacterium, smaller than a cell, it's a parasite, and parasites come in all shapes and sizes. And even if you can't see them... They are a big part of our lives. Well, they're sometimes helpful and sometimes they're not so helpful. Sometimes friends, sometimes foes. I'm Molly Bentley. I'm Seth Shostak, and this is Big Picture Science. My name is Thurland Fish, and I'm professor of epidemiology at the Yale School of Public Health. My name is Peter Krauss. I am a senior research scientist at the Yale School of Public Health. Well, Peter, I'll start with you. Any thoughts on the case of John Rayside and what you just heard? John had an illness that is very typical for babesiosis, although it's, well, it's certainly on the severe end side of, 
of illness. He had uh, what sounds like a shock requiring a therapy for that. And Derlin, what is the uh, relationship between Babesia, this parasite, and, and a tick? Well, this is a, a malaria-like parasite that, instead of being transmitted by mosquitoes, is transmitted by ticks. And rodents are generally, wild rodents are generally the natural hosts for these parasites. And these ticks feed on uh, infected rodents, pick up the Babesia infection, and the next time they feed, they can transmit it either to another rodent or to a person, depending on what they feed on. And sometimes deer. I know in Long Island, one of the big problems are the deer are infected or, or carry these ticks that have Lyme disease and babesiosis. Yes, you're right. One of the common names for this tick is the deer tick, and you're perfectly right. This is the same tick species that transmits Lyme disease and has caused uh, you know, an epidemic of Lyme disease for the last 30 years, an epidemic that we're still experiencing. Now, Peter, how many people have been infected roughly with babesiosis? And this is a disease that's primarily found in the Northeast. Well, the first case was described actually in Europe in 1957. The organism itself was discovered back in 1888 by Victor Babes, who was a Hungarian uh, pathologist. But the first human case was not described until 1957, and the first case in the United States was not described until the late 1960s. So it's a relatively recently discovered disease, and it's currently, the best estimate is somewhere between 500 and 1,000 cases a year in the United States, but that's almost certainly an underestimate because this disease is not easily distinguished from many other diseases that cause similar symptoms, like summer viral illnesses, as well as anaplasma, which is another organism transmitted by ticks. What is the relationship between malaria and babesiosis? Because at first, John or his family thought he might have malaria. He didn't. But why was there confusion at all? These microorganisms are similar in their both their genetics and in their manifestations in terms of illness in humans. So, so they're both their genotype and their phenotype, as terms we use, are similar. But they're really, in a sense, cousins. They're found in different areas. They're transmitted by different vectors. What one would really want to do is uh, look at a blood smear and, and look for organisms within the red cells, as occurred in this case. Now, what we heard was that it was a nymph tick they thought had bit John. What is a nymph tick, and what does that say about the cycle of the disease, the parasite, in this tick? Well, there are three feeding stages of the tick. The larva tick hatches from eggs, and the, uh, those larvae feed on an animal, a mouse or a bird or something, and they feed for a few days and drop off, and then they molt, that is, they shed their skin to the next stage, which is a nymph. The nymph also feeds on a host for a day or two and then drops off digests the blood meal and molts to the adult stage. The adult stage of this species feeds on deer primarily, and it feeds for about seven days, and it produces about 3,000 eggs, which all hatch into uh, larvae. So that's the life cycle of the tick. So Derlin, when does a disease become an epidemic, or when does it have the potential? What factors have to come together for a disease to become a true threat around the world? Well, diseases like SARS or influenza, those are, those are the, the big ones that we traditionally refer to as you know, pandemic diseases where they just spread around the world quickly. And they're usually human-to-human transmitted diseases. Those are a different class from what we're talking about here. Right. This is not a human-to-human transmitted disease. Exactly. So it's, but it is spreading, and it's spreading slowly. You know, but surely Lyme disease has certainly spread since its discovery in 
here in Lyme, Connecticut, 35 years ago, it spread quite a bit. But what has to happen to make a human susceptible to a disease? Because it can't take it for granted that any microbe that is on a deer or a tick, a, a cat, a bird, or whatever is going to make a human sick. Don't you have to have a perfect storm of, of conditions so that the human's immune system is actually susceptible to whatever the microbe might be? Well, from an evolutionary perspective, it's not good for these organisms to get in the humans because it's a dead end. Because once they infect humans, they're not going to get picked up by another vector and get transmitted. So humans are only accidental hosts in these, in these natural cycles of zoonotic diseases. But it still, in the case like West Nile, can involve quite a few people. There are probably, I think it was last estimate, there was like something like 5.3 million infections of West Nile virus since it's been introduced. All right. But uh, I have a question for Derlin, actually. There are uh, organisms in these ticks or in mosquitoes that don't infect humans, or at least as far as we know. So uh, some, some organisms have been able to adapt so that they can survive in humans and, and multiply in others. Uh, others have not. Is well, I, not I think, it's, I think it's, it's just simply accidental. I don't think it's an adaptation because they, can't, they won't be propagated right. if right. they get into people. Like I said, it's a dead end. So it's just accidentally. People just happen to be susceptible. Now, Peter, you mentioned... Um, there's another disease that is emerging, and I wonder if you could just give us a, a little introduction to it and maybe a word of caution. Anaplasma, is that right? Did I pronounce that correctly? Yes, anaplasma. The full name is Anaplasma phagocytophilum. Okay, say that again. Uh, anaplasma phagocytophilum. All right, is this another parasite? That is, it's actually a bacteria, a rickettsial bacteria. It's transmitted by the same tick that transmits babesiosis and Lyme disease. That's a busy tick. Yes, so should we run out and buy tick repellent? Would tick repellent help in these cases? Absolutely. Definitely recommend that for these tick-borne diseases. And, and I might recommend an app. We've designed uh, an app, an iPhone app for Lyme disease that tells you where the high-risk areas are for Lyme disease. And this map will at least show you where the ticks are that can, that can transmit these infections. Yeah, if you could only put a little, I don't know, beacon in each one of those ticks, then you'd have a really great map of where all those guys are. Well, we actually did that. No, we didn't. You we, did not. <laughs> we, <laughs> we came close to it. We, we put a lot of effort into that project. It was funded by the CDC. And, uh, and, in, uh, in trying to map where the ticks are? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And we had over 100 people working on that project. Were they graduate students on their hands and knees well, peer, we, peering into the soil? Yeah, we, we, were, we were cited by, I think, popular science for one of the, one of the worst jobs in science. <laughs> <laughs> Derlin Fish, thank you very much for speaking with us. You're welcome. My pleasure. And Peter Krauss, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you very much. Peter Krauss is a senior research scientist at the Yale School of Public Health. Derlin Fish is an epidemiologist at the Yale School of Public Health. Well, are the bacteria and the parasites taking over? Yes and no. Emerging diseases and hot spots in your house. Think kitchen and think small. Blame it on bacteria on Big Picture Science. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. 
For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Well, all right. The parasite Babesia that sickened John and the others that went to the East Coast, it's just another example of little organisms, microscopic organisms moving through animals and up the food chain to us. That's right. Now, Babesiosis isn't passed human to human, but, but some diseases are. Yeah. Of course, viruses cause disease, too, but we're not going to handle them in this show. That's a future Big Picture Science episode for all you virus fans. That's right. And if you are a virus fan, you can fan us on our virus Facebook fan page. I'll be sure to do that. (laughs) Okay. But sometimes the disease does spread outside a regional area. Yeah. Peter Hudson, who's a biologist at Penn State University, says that these illnesses are sometimes just the result of our love for the big city, for that matter, the small town lifestyle. Well, essentially, it's because of urbanization. It's really a consequence of humans coming into contact with ticks and those ticks also being in contact with wildlife hosts. So even diseases like measles we think originated from animals in the form of rinderpest and then spilt over into humans and developed into the special case of measles in humans. So we know that humans play a role, but you said animals, uh, so animals play a role as well. What is the role of animals as vectors in spreading disease to humans? They're the reservoir. They're the reservoir that carrying these infections around with them. And of course, they're specialized in those animals, but occasionally you get exposed to those. You get exposed to a whole lot of different bacteria, parasites, viruses every day as you're walking around. And of course, most of them you just shrug off. But occasionally, one of them actually gets hold of you and starts to do well. So the question is, what factors are involved when a disease goes from from an animal, a non-human animal, to a human and becomes an emerging disease. I would assume that a number of things have to line up. Absolutely right. What we think happens quite often is there might be, there might be some slight changes in the parasite or the bacteria when they infect you. And quite often what we see is we see spillover take place where the person won't even pass the disease on to begin with. After several occurrences, there will be a slight change in the virus or a slight change in the host which allows transmission to occur and then we might see a stuttering chain where one person infects another person and another person then the chain of transmission dies out totally. So if we look at something like Lyme disease or Babesiosis, people are getting infected but they're not really passing that disease on. It becomes much more worrying once they start passing it on to other people. And that's what's actually happened with a few diseases. Dengue and HIV are the are the obvious one. And the agent for Lyme disease is also a parasite, as it is with babesiosis? Yes, it is. It's a bacterium called Borrelia burgdorferi. Ah, what, what is the relationship between a parasite and a, and a bacterium? So a parasite, well, it's a, there are different definitions here. One, one definition is that all organisms that cause disease are caused parasites. But traditionally, a parasite was a multicellular organism, such as a worm or a tick or even a protozoan that causes infection. So babesiosis would be a parasite, for example. Bacteria, on the other hand, very different to organisms altogether. They're sometimes lumped with the viruses and called pathogens. But in both those instances, they are transmitted by ticks. 
Now, are we seeing an increase in emerging diseases around the world? Because on one hand, um, our science has become more sophisticated. We have ways of combating all these bugs that are trying to get at us. On the other hand, there are more people and more travel. So who's winning out? It's a very good question again, and it's very difficult to be able to uh, standardize that. But overall, we get the feeling that emerging diseases are increasing. Well, Peter, there have been some interesting developments in fighting disease. For one, a vaccine is being created for malaria. This is a parasitic disease that is one of the big killers in the world. But I understand that this is a tricky vaccine to make. Very tricky to make, and very tricky to make for a number of reasons. The obvious reason is that the malaria parasite itself, which is called plasmodium, changes on its outside structure of the parasite. So making a vaccine to attack it on one day is going to be very different from the vaccine that's needed on another day. It's a little creature and it shapeshifts? It actually shapes? Yes. It changes, it changes the way it looks or it, well, the way it looks to the immune system. So it's continually changing the way it looks. And so the immune system is looking for a parasite that looks like this, but it's changed its shape. It's changed it and it passes it by and goes off somewhere else. And so it's hidden for a period of time. But then the body comes back and goes, ah, so there you are. And it wants to attack it again, but it changes its shape again. So that's a real problem for vaccine development. If this vaccine does work, and it doesn't sound as if it's going to give total protection, but it might give 50% protection, but if it gave 50% protection, that might be enough to greatly reduce the transmission of this parasite in different parts of the world, and so reduce the impact it was going to have. And how many lives are we talking about saving if you reduce transmission just by 50%? Oh, um, hundreds of thousands, easily, huge numbers. Uh, This is one of the six big killers in the world. Now, when we talk about the mortality that's associated with malaria, certainly malaria is a big killer, but there have been diseases that have killed more people throughout history, at least in acute periods of time. And one of them is the bubonic plague or Black Death, which hit London, at least in the 14th century. Um, But this is a disease we like to think is gone, right, Peter? We don't have to worry about this again. This is ancient history, the bacterium that caused this terrible disease, and 30 to 50 million people died. So it really did have a very dramatic effect. In countries like Italy, it took Italy 400 years to recover from the uh, Black Death. But it still does exist, and it is still circulating in rodents in different parts of the world. We know it's in Kazakhstan, and it is indeed in prairie dogs still in America. It's fascinating, the whole story about how this moved into America, because it arrived in San Francisco and it spread west across the Rockies, But there is a line known as the plague line in America where it's only spread so far and then it stopped. And the real issue is we know it's in fleas and we know those fleas then transmit it to these prairie dogs. But then it appears to disappear. We'll see an outbreak. We'll see the prairie dogs die and it disappears. The question really is, where is it going to and what's happening to it? But it is still there ticking away in the background. And we really need more research to try and understand some of the components. Peter Hudson, I don't know how you sleep at night, but I suppose you have managed. I don't know if I will tonight. Thank you so much for speaking with us. It was lovely speaking to you, Molly. Thank you very much. Peter Hudson is a biologist and the director of life sciences at Penn State University. 
And all this talk about disease has made me hungry. <laughs> Seth, all talk makes you hungry. Well, that's true, but nonetheless... <laughs> hang on, hang on. Before you go through the refrigerator here like a crazy person, what do you think of the kitchen right now? Do you think it looks pretty clean? Yeah, I think it does look pretty clean. I mean, it's, everything's wiped down. It's uh, neat. I, mean, I don't know. Maybe you could do open-heart surgery on the countertops here. But that's what I thought, too, about my kitchen until I talked to food safety microbiologist Peter Snyder. Pete, if you were to walk into my kitchen searching for bacteria... Now, I keep a pretty clean kitchen, okay, but you were to walk in searching for bacteria. Where would you look? I would look for raw chicken in the refrigerator. (laughs) Even if it's in the refrigerator? Yes, because it got contaminated when the chicken was grown on the farm. And so you buy the chicken and you put it in the refrigerator. I thought refrigeration was supposed to kill the bacteria. No, it just slows the bacteria down so they don't grow as fast. And each has their cutoff point. Some stop growing at 45, some stop growing at 50. The danger zone for food is all the way down to 30 degrees Fahrenheit. Okay, 30 degrees Fahrenheit on the, on the cold end. What, what about the, the hot end? The hot end, it really quits at 125. 125 degrees. Now, if a, a pot of soup is boiling, how hot is that? That's 212, way above where you need to be for safety. Now, what about food that's been left out? Now, I'm someone who loves to make soups and leave them on the stove for a while, you know, sometimes even cooking stock overnight. And I understand that this is actually a a magnet for bacteria, as it were. They will collect on soup and stock and the sorts of things that you leave on the stove. If you're hotter than 130 degrees in your pot, you can stay there forever and nothing's going to grow. If you're below 130, 125, and that would be getting ready to go to bed and turning the heat off on your broth and letting it sit there all night, then you run the risk of spores growing out in that pot of soup and making people sick. Where does it come from? Where did the bacteria come from? Are they just floating around in the air and then they just land on your soup? No, it came from the farm. We have two different kinds of bacteria We have the vegetative form where they're multiplying to become four, become eight, become six. But two families, the Clostridia family and the Bacillus family, when it's a hostile environment, these two families of organisms can form a spore, which is a hibernating, dried-up form that's very resistant to cooking. So once you cook the soup and so forth, You have to assume that the spore survived that. It doesn't do anything until it gets down to 125, but when you get below 125, the spore starts to multiply. Okay, just to be clear, because it's a little confusing to me, it sounds like there are two different kind of bacteria. One does not produce spores, but there's another super-resistant kind that does produce spores? Yes. Okay, let's take the first group first, just the bacteria that that appear and form on food that you leave out. If you leave food out, if I leave out egg salad, if I leave out soup, will bacteria just begin to collect on that food? If it's raw food, then the raw spoilage organisms dominate, and we really don't get very much growth of the salmonella, the E. coli, and so forth on the raw hamburger. So when you cook it, you'll kill what grew. Okay, so cooking does help. That kills what Gets rid of the vegetative organisms. But the two families which can form spores on the farm, uh, in the dirt, and so 
you've got to then say, okay, I killed the E. coli, I killed the salmonella, but the spore form, the clostridia, the bacillus, they have survived. So then you got to apply the the rules for spore control, which are hotter than 130, cool in six hours, get down to 41. It sounds like that the bacteria that form these seed-like spores are the ones that are really resistant to heat, and they endure. They're tough. And the best way to get rid of them is heat, but you really have to crank up the heat. If you're going to get hot enough to kill the spore, you have to get to... 250 degrees for three minutes. But what about soup that you're just serving for your family? If you just heat it up and you have it boiling for a while, you could probably kill some of these seed-like spores. Well, you really have to tell me what temperature did you keep the pot at? Did you let the pot sit? If we're talking about Thanksgiving and the turkey, Dad's going to get his hands into the turkey when we slice it on the table. And then the question is, what do you do with the turkey? Do you put it in the refrigerator or do you leave it on the table and make sandwiches out of it eight hours later and everybody gets sick? Are you saying that dad, or sometimes it's mom that gets her hands in the turkey, but they're introducing bacteria to the inside of the turkey and then it starts to grow? Ah, yes. The human skin has a number of organisms, but one of the organisms, which is a resident organism of the skin, is Staphylococcus aureus. And Staph makes a toxin. So when dad gets his hands into the turkey, slicing the turkey. If the food is eaten in four hours, nothing happens. But if the food sits around until evening when you make sandwiches out of it, that's enough time for the staphylococcus from dad's hands. It gets in there and multiplies enough to make a toxin and make families sick when they eat turkey sandwiches at 9 o'clock at night. Coming back to these spores, I'm intrigued by this. What sort of foods bring spores into our homes? Um, These are bacteria that have created these seed-like cases, these spores. What sort of foods are coming into the homes that have these super-resistant bugs? All the food. Everything? Everything. The dairy products have got spores. The meat and poultry have got spores. Fish have got spores. The vegetables all come out. If it's got dirt on it, it's got spores. Wherever you see dirt in the world, you take a spoonful of it and culture it, and you'll find spores. We've got to understand the kitchen is not a place to make food taste good. The kitchen is a place where we kill bacteria. Okay. Pete Snyder, thank you so much for speaking with us. Uh, You're welcome. Peter Snyder is a food safety microbiologist at the Hospitality Institute of Technology and Management. But I've got to tell you, this is not an issue at my house because... I don't feel like having turkey sandwiches eight hours after a big Thanksgiving meal. Fortunately, this sandwich here is not turkey. It's tuna. (laughs) Well, actually, it is an issue with me. And ever since I talked to Peter Snyder, I'm an even more compulsive hand washer, and I'm boiling the hell out of everything, even salad. Yeah, well... (laughs) I'm going to wash my hands right now. All right. Okay. You know, Peter talked about how if you boil water, you kill all the microbes that are threatening us. But there are some microbes, some bacteria that can live in boiling water. They're called thermophiles. And in fact, there's some other critters that can live under conditions that for you and me would be totally unacceptable. Extremophiles. And Eric Fleming, who works at the SETI Institute, he's a biologist there, studies them. The ones that are like commonly studied and I think have been known for a long time are the thermophiles. 
largely because people were able to easily go to places like Yellowstone and they would see these hot springs and all these colors in it. And someone finally decided to look at what this slimy, wonderfully colored stuff was. And they found out it was bacteria and they they would find it at even very um, high temperatures, like up near uh, the mouth of a spring where some of those temperatures would be um, at or above boiling. Then people started to delve into more extreme areas that humans weren't easily able to go, like the bottom of the ocean. And then they started finding things like uh, hydrothermal vents teeming with life. Now they're finding them miles and miles deep in the earth where they are not getting any sunlight. They're not really connected with any of the geochemical cycles that are going up on the surface of the planet, just the movement of nutrients back and forth through wind, rain, ocean currents, and so forth. So they've kind of been separated from the world that we even live in now. Well, I've heard, maybe it's not true, but that there are creatures, microbial creatures that can live, for example, in the fuel tanks of aircraft or in mm-hmm. nuclear reactors and so forth and so on. I mean, these are pretty tough environments. Oh, yeah, definitely. These are kind of these things that we didn't even know they exist until we finally looked. And that's kind of what's driving a lot of research today in uh, studying microbes is that it seems that if you can think of an environment, a microorganism is going to be living in that. Now, you know, you're not going to find them on the surface of the sun. There are certain physical laws that you can't break. But largely, there are microbes that are able to eat almost any type of chemical you can think of. If it's got a small amount of chemical energy in it, it's going to eat it. And as long as that environment is stable long enough for them to be able to extract this energy out of it, they will grow and they will replicate. Um, one example that I thought that I uh, was thinking of today um, before I was going to give this interview were microbes that live in deserts, that live actually inside rocks. And um, a lot of them that live in these rocks do things just like plants do. They photosynthesize and so forth, but they've found a way to become dormant when there's no water around. Deserts don't have water in them for large periods of time, but these organisms will live inside the rock, which gives them a certain amount of protection from, say, another organism like a snail or a worm from eating it. And then they're able to wait for extended periods of time, years, for water to finally come in, and then they'll start growing. Okay, well, Eric, clearly these guys can live in very tough environments. Does that make them candidates for being typical of uh, the life in the universe? Because obviously the universe is going to have a lot more uh, tough environments than it is going to have, if you will, salubrious environments (laughs) like we have here on Earth. (laughs) Um, Well, that's part of the reason why um, scientists at NASA are looking at these kind of extreme organisms. Because when we go out into the universe and we look at these planets like Mars or Europa, we see that they are, uh, their environments are so extreme that we wouldn't imagine anything living on it. But we do find certain environments, these what we call analogous environments, which are environments on Earth that are similar enough to environments on Mars or on other type of planets. And when we go to those environments here on Earth, we find them teeming with life, various types of bacteria that are living in there. So it allows us to kind of expand our view on where organisms may exist. We don't know if they exist there or not, but we do know that if a Earth-type bacteria was ever seeded there or evolved there, then they could live and they could thrive. Let let me just ask you straight out. I mean, if you took all the extremophiles that we know about, you can't take any more than that, and you threw them all at Mars, Mm -hmm. and and then you came back, uh, you know, a year later, would any of them still be alive? Uh, That's an interesting uh, thought experiment. um, As a microbiologist, I would imagine there would be. The surface of Mars is largely inhabitable uh, due to radiation and 
massive temperature swings. And a lot of times the temperature is so low that life as we know it could survive, but not necessarily grow. And if you can't grow, you can't you know, repair yourself and you can't proliferate. But if they got deep into the crust, I would imagine there are little spots, little nooks and crannies where they could get enough energy and get all the things that they need that they could survive a kind of hard, limited life. But I think they could do it. Now, you're interested in how we might use these little microbial buddies for uh, space colonization. Mm -hmm. It sounds like they're already set to go. They don't need the spacesuits, at least some of them. How might they be used for space colonization, though? They can be used in many different ways. Uh, right now, if, you, if you're going to be sending up humans into space, you're creating an environment that microbes already are happy to grow in. And that's kind of one of the problems with space flight is that you can't really remove the bacteria from a human being and then send them into space. We rely on them too much, and it's just too hard. I, I'm sure no one would want to take a chlorine bath in order to get rid of the bacteria that are on them. So uh, <laughs> as soon as we go up there, they're growing, and you can generate bioreactors that could grow things like bacteria that could produce oxygen for you to produce food, to produce a lot of different things. And uh, um, so on one sense, you can just do that. On other things, um, people are talking about seeding uh, regolith from Mars or the moon and having the bacteria break down these minerals to extract out things that they need and release other types of minerals or oxygen or CO2 that can be used for other types of processes. So, so you're fundamentally just putting them to work. Yeah. <laughs> They're doing it already for yes. us. <laughs> all right. Well, that sounds like a good idea. I mean, you know, if you had to construct machinery to do all these sorts of things, I mean, that, that would be a very tough thing. Yes, and that's part of the reason. The, the idea of being able to take a thimble full of life and dropping it into a hole that has everything it needs, it would just grow, take over the entire area, and do all the work for you, as opposed to taking a you know, 100-ton bulldozer up to the moon. Eric Fleming, thank you so much for talking with me. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thank you. Eric Fleming is a biologist at the SETI Institute. All right, I'm going to heat this sandwich up. Bit of hot tuna. Well, from outer space to inner space, namely the inner you, want to know what microbes are growing in your tummy? I don't know if I do, but and if I don't? Well, blame it on bacteria. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. Okay, Seth, I brought you a present. Wow. Let me see it. What is it? This. Oh, my God. Hey, it's a pumpkin. It's a tiny pumpkin about the size of a June bug. Well, I know. He's cute. Yeah, it's a pumpkinito. Where did you get that thing? <laughs> well, I got it from Barb, actually. I took it off her desk. Now, on average, how big do you think these guys grow? 
what, an average pumpkin? Your supermarket pumpkin is typically, what, a half a foot to a foot in diameter? Something okay. like that. So this guy has to think big to be bigger than he is now because he's little. Yeah, he probably has some sort of pumpkin inferiority complex. <laughs> but with the help of bacteria, he might be harder to carry home. You mean he'd be bigger? Just ask Dave Steltz. He's a farmer and he's the president of the Great Pumpkin Commonwealth. Well, Dave, describe the biggest pumpkin you've ever grown. I've grown a 1,807.5-pound pumpkin, and the circumference of that would be actually close to 17 feet. Okay, that's a 5-foot diameter pumpkin that weighs as much as a small car. Why the heck are you doing this, Dave? Would you describe yourself as obsessed? I'm a real competitive gardener. I like that, but it's also the the wow factor. It's just simply amazing to watch something grow up to 40-plus pounds a day. Well, you're the president of the Great Pumpkin Commonwealth. How many people are members of that Commonwealth? How many people are doing what you're doing, growing these outsized jack-o'-lanterns? We figure we have about 10,000 members worldwide that actually get in there and put a seed in the ground in hopes of being the next world champion. You, You don't use the average seeds you can buy at the local hardware store, right? We're using closed pollinated seeds. We have the genealogy that goes back generations, and we track all this. So these are seeds that have come from other big pumpkins. Exactly. It's the old theory of putting the best of the best together, and we close pollinate to uh, ensure our genetics to keep pushing it forward. Now, do you have any secret sauce, so to speak, that you put on these things to, to help them grow faster? We use a lot of biological gardening avenues. We put mycorrhizae and a new product called PPFM. That's a nice bacterial composition that we put in there to help us get the most out of our soil and get the uptake into the plant. And before you were using these bacterial aids, how big were the pumpkins? Were they significantly smaller than they are today? Well, I set the world record in 2000 at 1,140 pounds, and now we're over 1,800 pounds, and 2,000 pounds is not far off. And to get to 2,000 pounds, would that put you at the top of the pumpkin heap? Well, the person who gets the first one-ton pumpkin is going to definitely have a few uh, accolades coming their way. There's no doubt about that. No, no, no gold-plated pumpkin to put on your mantle, though. Not at 2,000 pounds. I don't think it'll fit. <laughs> <laughs> Dave Steltz, thanks so much. Thank you. Dave Steltz is a farmer, and he's the head of the Great Pumpkin Commonwealth. Neil Anderson is the president of Reforestation Technologies International, and this is the company that makes some of those bacterial additives, such as... Uh, PPFMs, pink pigmented facultative methylotrophs. Kind of rolls off the tongue. I knew you'd be able to say that. And also fungi that Dave claims to use. Neil, Dave said he's using a bacterium that you make at your company just to grow his enormous pumpkins. Is he pulling my leg? No, he isn't. That's correct. Okay, so he's doing that. How, how does your bacterium, or your bacteria, I suppose he uses more than one, make his pumpkins, you know, five feet wide? Well, it's actually more than bacteria. We have combinations of bacteria and fungi, and what they do is enhance the transportation of nutrients in the soil to the plants. Well, can you explain to me how that works? How do they get more food out of the ground and into the plant? Well, one of the key components is a fungi called mycorrhizae, and what it does, it attaches to the roots of plants and grows little filaments out into the soil and attaches to clusters of bacteria. Now, these bacteria are the type that break down phosphorus and calcium, zinc, uh, sulfur, uh, nitrogen, and they will give that to the mycorrhizal fungi, which delivers it to the plant. The plant, in exchange, feed the uh, bacteria carbohydrates. So, kind of like having more roots, really, for the plant, with the bacteria on the ends of the roots to, you know, bring in the, the good stuff. 
Now, uh, these bacteria, where do they come from? Have, have you manufactured these, or did you just find them in nature? They come from Mother Nature. What we have done is isolate superior strains that enhance growth and are known to produce better results than your common bacteria and fungi. And the name of the bacterium that Dave is using? Dave is using three organisms. One is mycorrhizal fungi. Another one is azospirillum. It's a nitrogen-fixing bacteria. And the third is what we call PPFMs. PPFM. I'm told that stands for pink pigmented facultative methylotrope, which I guess is better to abbreviate with an acronym. You said that very well. (laughs) Okay. Well, Dave and other members of the Great Pumpkin Commonwealth, they're using your products for pumpkins, but I assume that's not what you developed them for. What would be the primary use for these uh, bacterial agents? It's used extensively to revegetate, particularly after forest fires. And does it always result in gigantism? I mean, (laughs) it's not that the trees are going to be bigger when they grow back. No. Well, Neil Anderson, I want to thank you so much for talking to me. Well, thank you very much. Neil Anderson is the president of Reforestation Technologies International. You know, I just don't have the stomach for all these bacteria. Oh, but you do, and more, because in your body there are a trillion cells, Seth cells, right now doing their Seth thing, but there are 10 times as many hitching a ride on you. This is according to microbiologist David Relman. Wait a minute. (laughs) Who gave those guys permission to hitch a ride on my body? Dave, should we feel good about that? You should be ecstatic because they're doing far more than we could have possibly imagined, things that are absolutely essential for human health. For one thing, they're helping you digest your food. They're helping you digest parts of your diet that you would otherwise just be spewing out the other end in unfinished form. For example, plant material. They're helping me digest things. And now this sounds like things that cows and other ungulates might have, where they they need some help in digesting stuff, or termites who can eat wood. And so they help us with that. But what are some of the other things they're doing? They're also helping you acquire certain kinds of key nutrients that you otherwise wouldn't have available, things like vitamins. That's all part of the nutritional aspect. They're also stimulating your immune system to recognize foreign intruders, at times when they wouldn't otherwise be able to do so. And, and in fact, even in a more fundamental sense, stimulating your immune system to develop properly. But I would think that my immune system would kind of rebel against these guys. I mean, after all, they're not really part of my body. Why is it that they're, as it were, immune from attack by my immune system? Well, you acquire them at the very earliest days of life, at times when your body is just learning how to recognize what it should care about as foreign and what it should tolerate as part of you. They, they arrive at an opportune moment in your life, at a time when they can help your body decide what it should be happy and tolerant of and what it should get offended by. Now, the number of microbes involved here is enormous. You say it's 10 times the number of cells that uh, have my DNA in them. What is the approximate number of varieties here? Are they all kind of the same microbe? Are there many different varieties? It's on the order of thousands. So roughly each of us has at least several thousand different species or strains of bacteria in our gut, a somewhat lesser number in our mouth and on our skin. They're all part of us, not only us as humans, but us as individuals. So you have a particular consortium. It's similar to mine, but also distinct. Now, there's been some work recently 
that addresses the question of what happens to this, these uh, flora and fauna <laughs> in, in my body when I take antibiotics for who knows what. Maybe I have some other medical condition. I swallow these antibiotics. Presumably these guys get inadvertently targeted. Exactly. There's a huge amount of collateral damage. Bystanders are wounded or destroyed as a part of this little war that we, we wage against certain specific relatively rare disease-causing microbes. So when we use antibiotics, it's usually, we hope, for a good reason, but then there's this big trade-off. And in work that we've done, others have done, we know that almost all antibiotics have huge effects on the friendlies as well as the disease-causing Can you give me an example of how that works? Well, we've looked, for example, at one particular antibiotic called ciprofloxacin. I've taken it. (laughs) <laughs> and, for example, so did 30,000 U.S. postal workers right after the anthrax letters attacks because it was the antibiotic being used to prevent them from developing anthrax. So that was a very worthy purpose. But what we didn't realize at the time was that in taking that antibiotic, about a third to a half of all of the friendly bacteria in your gut are being decimated. Okay, well, that sounds like massive carnage, but uh, <laughs> would I have noticed? I mean, what's the consequence for me? You know, I, I don't want to sound unsympathetic to the microbes, but, you know, I'm in it for me. Well, exactly. And, and this is the problem. We often don't know when we have suffered a health consequence from this friendly damage. Because in a few cases, there are symptoms like diarrhea or even worse problems But in most cases, we don't feel any the worse for taking these antibiotics. And yet we know that a number of bacteria that we rely on for health are being harmed. Now, if they return to their previous numbers, then we may not have suffered too much. But what we're learning is that they don't always return. And it's these cumulative long-term effects that we simply don't know much about. And when you say they don't always return, I mean, I don't quite understand how they would return at all. I mean, if I wipe them out with antibiotics, particular species of these microbes, maybe I picked them up when I was six months old, and I'm not going through that again, so how would I get them back in any case? Good question. We think that when the damage is done by these antibiotics, it's not to the point of extinction, but rather decrease in numbers, huge decreases in numbers, but still allowing some reservoir to remain in the gut. In other words, small numbers that can then grow back up. Well, there's a project here called the Human Microbiome Project. Did I get that right? This is a large U.S.-funded national effort to catalog all of these friendly hitchhikers from a variety of healthy people to understand who's there and what they might be doing. So you're trying to set a baseline. In other words, you take a whole bunch of nominally healthy folk, you what, take a swab through your, their stomachs or whatever, and, and then you, you just sort of categorize all the, uh, all the life in there, and now you know what a, a healthy person has, and you can compare that with somebody who walks in not feeling too well. Right. This particular project, which is one of many, looked at 300 people, but it's still an early look because it turns out that the amount of variability in this particular aspect of health is immense. We used to think that each individual human had a huge amount of variation just in our own genetic code, the human genome. Turns out that the variety here is far greater. So it's, it's not just a matter of who you are, but it's where you live, what you do, to whom you were born, what your hobbies happen to be, what you prefer to eat, whether you have pets, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, and will this be useful ultimately in uh, diagnosing and treating disease? 
We think it will be in ways that we haven't yet clearly sorted out. But we think, for example, it may be diagnostic of health to come or diagnostic of disease that may be imminent. Just as an example, in the mouth, we're looking at whether the patterns of bacterial diversity in your gum pockets might predict which of your teeth are in danger of disease and loss through, through gum disease, even though it hasn't yet progressed. Is this comparable to the human genome project in terms of complexity or effort? It's of greater complexity and will take much greater effort, but it's potentially of as much or more relevance to human health and disease. You, you must bound out of bed in the morning. I mean, this sounds like a really challenging problem. Well, the great thing is that there are some really interesting questions embedded here, and that it's teaching us that much of the microbial world is a very beneficial picture. It, it's a story of camaraderie, co-evolution, co-adaptation, and friendship. It's symbiosis, which literally means eating at the same table. Well, David Relman, I have to say that uh, we have met the enemy. They seem to be part of us, and I guess I will never look at microbes quite the same way again. We certainly hope that you won't. Thank you very much for talking with me. I'm very happy to. Dave Relman is a microbiologist and an infectious disease clinician at Stanford University. So it seems that we shouldn't wipe all the microbes off the planet. No, but you couldn't do it anyway. Even if you had really large, global-sized handy wipes? Yeah, well, look, the, the, the weight of all the microbes dwarfs the weight of everything that's bigger than a microbe. So we have to make peace with these guys. Well, that's it for our show. Thanks to our Larger Than Life, Larger Than Bacteria production staff, Gary Niederhoff, Barbara Vance, and volunteer Jay Weiler. And also support from Rena Shulsky David and Sammy David and the NASA Astrobiology Institute. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute. And a big thanks also to our listeners. Your ears have been attuned to Blame It on Bacterio. You can find more Big Picture Science on iTunes and through the link on our website. If you're a podcast listener and you prefer over-the-air radio, well, check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science, everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts.